Hey there. It's so great to have you here with us today. One Chapel is a family of neighborhood churches in Lake Travis, and we help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about the things God is doing in this community and how to get involved at OneChapel.com. I hope you enjoy this week's message from our Who Am I series. Good morning, Lake Travis. How are we doing this morning? All right, you got the young guy today, so we got to be a little more excited than that. How about this? Good morning. All right, good. We got to be awake. We got to be alive here this morning because we're going to have some fun. Who went to a Who Am I group this week? Anybody? Anybody around here? How was it? Was it fun? Was it great? We had, um, I had a Who Am I group at our house, and it was, it was so much fun out in Marble Falls. We live way out in the boonies. Um, so all the Marble Falls um, people from One Chapel came out, and it was, it was so much fun to have our little group. I had this huge plan. I worked all week long. I built all of these outdoor games. Like, I was super psyched for this. And it was, like, we, we got all that. We were grilling out. We bought all the food. And then there was a horrible thunderstorm all night long for the entire time. So we, like, crammed into my little garage and living room and just were like, yeah, we're just going to deal with it. But, but it's fun. We had, a, we had a blast. And there were so many good relational topics. And so we're in this series that we're calling Who Am I? And one of the things that we really want to do is we want to put people in small groups. Because identity is such a critical aspect of who we are. It, it, it determines how we react to things. It determines our, our decisions. It, 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 it shapes our life. And, and so identity is such a critical topic, um, especially for a Christian. So if you haven't joined a Who Am I group yet, they are listed on the board out there. You can talk to Lisa. You can talk to me. You can talk to almost a lot of people in here. And I'm sure they'll invite you to, to their group if you haven't joined one please do. Please don't miss this opportunity. It's only now five weeks long. We only have five weeks left. It's only a five-week commitment, one night a week, and I think, I think it'll really, really benefit you. But if you don't know who I am, my name is Logan Schwant, and I'm the youth and children's pastor here at One Chapel Lake Travis. I'm super excited to, to bring the word this morning on, uh, on the next topic of who am I. And, and this, this, this identity topic, which this whole series is going through, this identity topic is something that's really big for you. And I think that's really easy to see when we look at our youth, right? Like, we, we just, we see them in this battle with all these different things, right? They have school that's telling them they need to be something. They have sports that's telling them they need to be something else. They have you as parents that's telling them that they need to be something. And they have church telling them something. And, and then they have social media and they have politics. And they just have so many things in this world that are just telling these kids and they're, and they're being shaped they're being shaped by all of these things. And one of the biggest pet peeves of a youth pastor is when adults look at kids and are like, man, this, this generation that's coming up, they're just, we're, we're hopeless. Like, they're going to ruin the world. They're going to light it all on fire, and we're just all going to die. And it's just going to be, it's going to be terrible. And, and, and usually, usually, as a youth pastor, what I've come to believe is is adults look at a youth's battle with identity because a lot of times it comes out in their sinful actions, right? Right, like if a high school girl is battling with who she is and looks for comfort from relationships 
you know, we'll see her actions and we'll think, well, she just doesn't know who she is. She's, she's just lost. She's figuring this thing out and shame on her. Like, that's, 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 she needs to grow up fast and she needs to do this. And, and we, we, we start to get in this habit where we look at the young, we look at the young generation who's fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their life with their identity. And we kind of point our fingers. And, and, and one of the things that, that I think that adults do is, is it's really easy to point the finger at somebody who's in their battle, especially when we're rooted in our failures, when we're rooted in our own. Because the reality is, is that everybody is living in an identity crisis. Every single one of us are living in an identity crisis. And the thing that I want to make really clear as we begin to look at this topic this morning and look at this comparison issue and, and dive into this, I, an identity issue is not sin. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disconnect there. Okay, an identity issue is not sin. Okay, but sin is a lot of times a sign of an identity issue. So as adults, as adults, it's really easy for us to say, well, I'm not struggling with those same things that those kids are, so I'm not necessarily in an identity battle because I know who I am, right? Our concerns are money, um, keeping our house running and all of our kids alive and, and things like that, providing for our family. You know, our concern is, is more, we have these, these adult issues. We don't have those issues of a child anymore. But what in reality is we're living we're living with the effects of all of the identity battles that we had as a kid. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times the difference between youth and, and adults is that adults have stopped fighting. Adults have given up on this issue. We stopped fighting, you know, but, but here's some signs, right? You know, I'm bitter because my dad was hard on me. But those kids are just a bunch of selfish, lazy people, and they're, they're, they're the horrible next generation. I have a drinking problem because I never figured out how to cope with stress as a kid. So eventually I just gave up, but gosh, these kids are just a bunch of druggies. My home is falling apart because I work hard in public, but I have no real integrity. So when I get home, I pour nothing into my family, and um, I remind them how important I am because I make all the money for the house. But yet... The kids are, you know, my wife and I are getting a divorce because I don't know how to show her I love her. So I'm beginning to doubt whether or not I really do love her because I never experienced true love as a kid. But yet, I don't have an identity issue. You know, I can't connect with my kids because I never connected with my parents. I come to church because it's the right thing to do, but I gave up on God a long time ago. You know, we, we experience these fights and we don't view them necessarily as a core identity issue of who we are. We just experience them of, well, life is hard. It's just an effect. And one of these the reason identity is so critical, not just for youth, but for us as well, because it shapes everything in our lives. And a lot of us have an identity that is formed on a lot of hardships that happened when we were a kid. And we are continuing to walk in that identity. So one of the things, I just want to, maybe that is you and maybe it's not. But I just want to open up that door of identity is a major, major issue that we all fight with. Because God says one thing about our identity and this world says something else. God says that I have created you, that I have knit you together in your womb, that I know the number of hairs on your head, that I have a plan for you, that I have a destiny for you, and that I love you. And the world says you have to be something else. You're not good enough the way you are. You'll never be loved. You'll always be broken. So there's, there's, there's a battle that we are all in. 
We are all in this process of figuring out who we are. And until we are in the glory and the presence of our Father in heaven, we are going to be in an identity battle for ourselves. Where we need to be submitting to who God says we are and letting go of what this world says we are. And, and so we're, we're, we're diving into this topic that I think is really big and maybe a little bit heavy for us, which is comparison. Because comparison is, is something we've all struggled. We all compare ourselves to other people. It starts when we're a little tiny kid, right, on the playground. Pick me first. Oh, you got picked last. Well, that means you're worse than everybody else. You know, it starts, I'm not as good of a student as, as my brother and sister. I'm not as tall as those other people. I'm not as pretty as those other people. And we just, we just develop a habit of comparing ourselves to others from the time we are two years old. You know, how much money do they have? You know, I need, to, I need to be a certain people. I need to dress a certain way, right? You know, pastors have this big comparison, like skinny jeans, okay? Skinny jeans would not be invented unless we wanted to compare ourselves to other people because they are not comfortable, and you will never, ever catch me in skinny jeans, okay? I'm just saying. Also, dress shirts with really, really large cuffs, right? Like, like you won't catch me in that. But if I was comparing myself to Russ, like, maybe that's what I would want to wear. That's what I would want to be, okay? If you ever pay attention to the shirt Russ wears every single Sunday, you will see these really, really large cuffs and usually polka dots in some sort of beautiful pattern, right? Like, we, if we just compare ourselves, we're always living to be somebody else. Or funny socks, right? I'm wearing pink flamingo socks. I like to. It keeps me alive. It keeps me, keeps me young, right? But we, there's, there's an identity thing, and we can compare ourselves to anybody in this world and it's a dangerous battle. So we're going to dive into this. So the scripture that we're looking at, or here, I want to say one more thing, because I went on a little tangent there, you know. Um, this is really important. The only thing that's more valuable than your soul to the devil is your identity. And that's, that's why this series, this series means so much to me. It means so much to our youth. That's why I beg parents to send their kids to youth group. Because if they're not there, who's telling them they're their identity? That's why, that's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we praise God so we can be realigned. The only thing that's more important than your soul to the devil is your identity. Because once he takes your identity, he takes your power, he takes your authority, and he takes your purpose. Because we give it up. Because we sacrificed it. So knowing who we are, knowing where we get our power from, knowing our place is so critical. And that's what identity is all about. So last week we talked about insecurity. And now we're diving into comparison. Right? Really, if you think about comparison, we do it because we look for joy. We do it because we, we want to compare ourselves, really, if we're smart with comparison, we always compare ourselves to somebody who's worse than us, right? Like somebody who has less money because then I have lots of money. Somebody who's not as good as that thing because then you're really good at that thing. That's, that's how we usually, that's, that's the goal when we set out with comparison, but many times it does the exact opposite because somebody always has more money. Somebody is always prettier. Somebody always has a better family. Somebody always has better things. And, and, and comparison fuels our pride. And it fuels so many of these things hidden in our souls 
that we fight with. So one of my favorite sections of scripture is I'm an Old Testament person. Is anybody else an Old Testament person in here? Like, if you say the Bible's boring, just go read, like, anywhere from, like, Judges through the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, there's so many stories about killing and death and these awesome, crazy things. And there's this super fat guy where they lose a sword in his belly because he's so fat. And, and, like, all of these crazy things that you would never think of in the Bible. But my favorite section is specifically the early kings of Israel. Because they're, they're so dumb. And they're so anointed. And they're so called. And they mess it up so many times. And then God brings so much glory through them. And it's such this, it's, it's such this dynamic. So we're going to look at the situation between Saul, David, and Jonathan here this morning. Because I think it, it really points to this comparison issue. So here we go. So 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. When the men retur- were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, The women came out of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, and they were singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. I don't know what a timbrel is or a lyre. That's those those maybe guitars and trumpets and things like that. Um, As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands. He thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So we have those three major characters that I just mastered, right? Saul, he's the king of Israel. We have David. David is really nobody at this point. Like David is just this young little whippersnapper who, who you know, was, was nobody before all of a sudden the nation of Israel became so scared of this big giant named Goliath. And David was this young, dumb kid who's just got this audacious faith. He's just like, I'll do it. I'll go, I'll go challenge him. Our God is bigger. I'll just go and do it. Yeah, let me, let me put on the king's armor. Oh, I'm too small. To literally, I'm literally too small to wear the king's armor. So I'm just going to go out with nothing. I'm just going to go out with this little stone and my sling. And that's what he does. That's who David is at this point. There's, there's nothing about David, you know, across the nation of Israel other than him slaying Goliath in this one instance that would make him any sort of a great person, right? And then we have Jonathan, and Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the rightful heir to the throne, okay? So, so if anybody was going to threat the throne, they weren't really a threat to Saul. Saul is older. Saul's been king for a while. He's, he's, he's older up there, but really it would be on Jonathan. Because that throne is, once Saul dies, that's, Jonathan's like, that's mine. That's my throne. That, that, that's the progression that it should be, right? Jonathan could and really has every right to that claim. But we see in the story, Saul all of a sudden starts saying, man, they're saying David killed tens of thousands. I've only killed thousands. And in that moment, Saul starts measuring. He starts measuring how good he is compared to somebody else. You know, my sister, over the past 10 years, I've learned so much from her. She's three years older than me. And um, she's always had a deep longing to become married. Like, just this, this, you know, almost just this heart of, like, I I just want to be a mom. I just want to be a wife. I just want to love my husband and, and, and. And she's had this deep longing. And, uh, you know, she watched my oldest sister go away and 
um, went away to college and met a guy right away in college and, and got married at 22. And then she watched her younger brother, who's three years younger, go away to college, meet a, get married to a girl at 22. And there she's sitting at 25, and she's never even had a boyfriend. She's never even had a relationship. And, and, and I've watched time and time again the, the tears and the strain and the heartbroken and the pain of, of seeing everybody else around her, seeing everybody else around her have a relationship, be happy, start families, all of her friends. To make matters worse, she's a wedding photographer. Her job is to take pictures of weddings. Okay, she's been a maid of honor four times. She's been in a bridal party over 30 times. Like, dude... Do you see, like, she has every right to say, why can't I put on that dress? God, what is wrong with me? Why can't I be the one who's putting on that dress? And she struggled with it, as anybody would. You know, there's been pain, there's been tears. But, but she made a decision. She made a decision that she does not find her value in that gown. She does not find her value in that ring. She does not find her value in that man. She finds her value in him. And she made that decision a long time ago. And because of that decision, she puts my walk with God to shame. Because she has this intimate love with God. Because she chose his identity for her in that moment over the comparison identity. You know, I love, I love saying this because I'm like six weeks away from flying home to be a groomsman in her wedding. At the age of 29, she had to wait a long time for her prince to come through. But she always had her king. And she always had her dad. And there's, we have a choice of where we're going to live our lives from. And Saul is caught measuring. Saul has only slain thousands. David has tens of thousands. And I, just to put even more perspective to this, okay, this is not the first battle Saul has won. Israel, with Saul as king, has gone through and defeated a lot of people. Like the Philistines were the first ones who presented any sort of threat to him. And all of a sudden he gets scared, and he forgets who he is, and he forgets who God is, and he forgets what God wants for the nation of Israel. And it's this young little kid, David, who understood who he was, who was the one who ended up finding that. And all of a sudden it unravels who Saul is. It shows this, this hidden thing in him. Right? And so what is Jonathan? How does Jonathan play effect in this story? Right? He's the rightful heir. He's the one who should have been struggling with this the most. But in the end, he actually shows quite a lack of anxiety and quite a, lot of, a, a bit of hope. 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 through 32 says this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. When Jonathan supported David, his anger flared up of him, and he said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I don't know what my wife would say if I said that about her, but it would not be good. I just built a doghouse for my puppy, and I would probably be sleeping in that for a long time. Um, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Look at, look at Saul's pride. He won't even say to his shame. He's, he's like disconnecting himself from Jonathan. He's not saying it's, you know, you're my shame. No, he's too good for that. He's, he's even beyond that because he's so scared of this situation. You know, you're shaming yourself and you're shaming your mother. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you 
nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan's reply is, why should he be put to death? What has he done? So Saul, it says, he becomes afraid of David and he, becomes to, he begins to keep a close eye on David. He begins, begins to keep a close watch on him and he even wants to kill him. So what, what is he keeping a close eye on? Is he keeping a close eye on God's plan for his life? Is he keeping a close eye on what God wants to do with the kingdom of Israel? Is he keeping a close eye on his purpose, on his calling, on the prophetic words that have been spoken over him, on the person that God has created him to be? No, he's keeping a close eye on this little kid named David. All of a sudden, his whole purpose in life, his whole trajectory that God had him on, everything where he was going, all of a sudden now he's looking backwards. If you can picture this, like... God is like, come on, Saul, come this way. Come this way. I'm going to take you into greatness. I'm going to take you there, and it's going to be great. And now David's like, no, but there's this kid back there. He's, he's threatening this walk. He's threatening him. But God's like, no, 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 just keep coming. No, but I'm watching him. He's going to catch up to me. He's going to catch up to me. If Saul would have just lived in his identity, David, David would have only been somebody who contributes to the kingdom alongside Saul. How differently could that have played out? But instead, Saul goes down as this wicked man who's tormented by demons and all of these things and all of these struggles that he has. And he's just, his walk with God is just so chaotic and so miserable and so depressing for the end of his life because he was so distracted with what was behind him and not looking at what is in front of him. So what is this story telling us? This story is telling us is that comparison is a game that you cannot win. It's a losing endeavor because every time we move into comparison, every time we spend time looking at somebody else's world and superimpose what is lacking in yours on social media, at work, at home, the person who got promoted, you're playing a game that you cannot win. Is anybody in here competitive? Who's competitive? All right, now I know who I need to look out for. Um, I am probably the most competitive person in the world. If you ask me to go play you in a one-on-one game of basketball right now, I would very arrogantly say, let's go, because I have confidence. If you ask me to go play a game of chess, I would say no and come up with the best excuse that I can come up with as to why I don't have time to play the game of chess because I know that if you're asking to play chess, you're actually probably good at it and I don't even know what the names of the things on the chessboard are. So how in the world am I supposed to beat you in chess? And if I can't win, I ain't doing it. Is anybody else there? If you can't win, I ain't doing it. Right? So if it's something that, if it's something that we can't win, well, then we just quit. So what does that look like in your life? You don't have as much money as that person, so what are you going to do? Your marriage isn't as good as that person's, so what are you going to do? It creates this dangerous trap. It traps us. You know, I think, I think comparison is, is actually one of the sort, we're going to talk about, you know, six different issues over that, right? Insecurity last week. Comparison is actually like one of those things that unleashes all of those. It unlocks it. It just sets them free. All those feelings of insecurity. If you weren't comparing to somebody else, you wouldn't be insecure. Right? There's, it's, it's just this, it's this peace that's at the heart. And it's something that we need to deal with. So what, what are some things? How can we deal with it? 
Number one, three things that help you kill comparison. Number one, stop finding your identity in things that are measured. I've told some of my story. Here's a 30-second of my calling into ministry. I, I got called into ministry as a young kid. I wanted to go plant churches in foreign countries. I hated the American church because we're so caught up with all the junk. We're so obsessed with our money. We're so obsessed with materialistic things that, that, that we never pay any attention to God. So I looked at the church and I said, God, I never want to be a part of that church. And um, I, I was in Haiti and I was doing mission work and I was ready to surrender my life, to move to Haiti, move my whole, you know, move everything to Haiti. And, and God sat there right there and he said, no, I want you to be the person who comes and brings passion. I want you to be a person who comes and spurs the American church forward and moves them forward. And, 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 and so, so that, that's my, that's, that's the, 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 how I got here. That was the trajectory with God of how I got here. And, and one of the reasons that I was so passionate about third world countries is because if you go to a third world country, there's nothing to compare it to. Okay, so here's the belief in Haiti. You're poor, you have nothing, you never will have nothing, you never will have something, so don't even try. So if you're like comparing, you're like, you have nothing, well so do I. There's no, there's no value in comparison to anything. The only people with any money are the government, because they hold on to it all. And when you walk into a Haitian church, you walk into a place where the only thing that matters is the Spirit of God. The only thing that is present in there is the Spirit of God. Because when you have nothing, and then you find your true identity, you have everything. And the reason I love that so much is because there's nothing that's stealing it. You know, it's, there's, there's ministries in Haiti that their, their purpose is to convince people that they can get a job. That's, that's their purpose. Like, I don't know if you've ever been fully convinced that there's no jobs in America, but, but they don't know what a job is. So they have to teach, hey, if, if you want to be successful, you have to make money. And they go, well, what's money? And you, then they say, well, here's what you have to do. You actually have to provide goods for somebody else. And they go, well, what is that? How do I do that? They don't, even, they don't even know that. But from that center, they understand who they are because they don't have this comparison issue. So we need to stop measuring. And this is a hard message for Americans because we have a lot to measure. And we don't want to be a Saul. We don't want to be a Saul. We don't want to measure. Here's... Um, this series is kind of centered around a book lit, written by Pastor Jeff Little. And he tells this story about how a girl one time asked him, she said, so what makes Christianity different? Why is Jesus important? Why can't I go to all these other religions? And this was his answer. It says, Christianity, it's based on Jesus. And by the way, this walk with Jesus is not just a religion, it's a relationship. I understand that it's officially classified under a set of religious ideas, but really, technically, this is about a relationship. Look, all religions in the world are based on some type of metric or even certain traditions that have it that are missing in the terms of Jesus. It's all about measurement. There's some spiritual person who lays out some type of ideology, some type of metric, some type of spiritual system that you need to adhere to, and you're constantly wondering if you're actually getting it right because you don't actually know, because a lot of it is nebulous. 
But even the steps you do know that you should take, you don't always know if you're actually taking them or not, and you're not trying to live up to them, and you usually feel good about yourself by comparing yourself to someone else. As long as you're doing more of the system than somebody else, then you feel spiritual. Has anybody ever been there, even with Christianity? As long as I don't have as much sin in my life as other people around me, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. One big difference in all these other religions that are based on measurement and based on doing is that the founders of those religions are dead. Jesus is still alive. And Jesus is about a relationship and what Jesus says, which is totally different than religion. Jesus comes to us and says something powerful. He says, I know you realize you can't measure up. And I know you're trying to compare yourself to somebody that's not spiritual or somebody that is spiritual. Both of which make you feel like a loser. And Jesus says, you don't measure up and I know it. So Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, and he hangs on the cross and he says, measure me. He dies for us, and he raises from the dead, and because he's alive, we don't have to find our identity spiritually or otherwise in things that are quantifiable and measurable. All of those things make us want to quit. We can now find our identity in a living Savior who comes to live inside of us. He comes to dwell within us. We're not moving towards these systems to try to find approval anymore. We're now moving from a relationship with a perfect Jesus. 2 Corinthians says this, 10-12 says, Of course, we wouldn't dare to put ourselves in the same class or compare ourselves with those who rate themselves so highly. They compare themselves to one another and make up their own standards to measure themselves by and then judge themselves by those standards. What self-delusion. If we're looking to this world... For those standards, if we're looking for this world, for our value, Paul's saying, what self-delusion are you living in? So what are we finding in our identity? And when we find it in Christ, he is the perfect sacrifice. And you now have the ability to walk out everything that he has called you to do from a position of strength. Because it's not based on comparing yourself to somebody else. And ultimately, if you live spiritually comparing or emotionally comparing or practically comparing, here's what will ultimately happen. If we don't think we have a chance to win, we quit. So if we don't stop comparing ourselves, there will be areas in your life where you are called to do more and to do great things, and you will quit. The story of the Bible is this. Those who know how to rely on God's strength over their weaknesses, are ultimately the people that God can use long term. I want to be that. Number two, stop allowing fear to make you territorial. Galatians 6.4 says this, each one should test their own actions. And when they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to anyone or to someone else. Test our own actions. The story of David is this young kid who is faithful. The story of Saul is this man who's so worried about this young kid who's getting accolades. So he spends his time looking behind instead of looking ahead. So what makes you territorial? Let me give you a picture. All right. I'm going to name drop him because I asked him. I, I talked to him this week. Who knows Eric Harper? Eric Harper. We just sent him last fall as a missionary to 
um, to Germany, and he's doing great things, and it's a wonderful story. Well, he lived with us for four or five months um, before he went to Germany. And uh, I love Eric. Don't misunderstand this. Eric is my best friend. I love Eric deeply and dearly. Okay, but one of the things that Eric likes is food. He likes food. And one of the things that Eric was oblivious to when he was living in our house is that leftovers are not free game. And, and this, was, this, was a, this was a common occurrence. I mean, and I, was, I probably should have, like, thrown down the hammer. But, but you know, we would, we would go to a nice restaurant, and, and I'm, I'm a little weird, okay? I'd, I'd almost rather eat my food at home. I like, I'd ra- like, I get, like, I just eat a little bit, and then I'm like, I can't wait to warm this up at midnight. Like, I don't know why, it's just, it's just, it's, I'm a little weird that way, but, you know, I'd, 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 I'd get up at midnight, and I'm like, yes, oh, this steak, it's going to be so good. I'd open the fridge. And it'd be gone. I am territorial about my leftovers. I'm territorial about my leftovers. And listen, when we compare ourselves to other people, we become territorial. And it's because we have a small view of God. Because we're comparing ourselves to somebody else, and we say, there's not enough. There's not enough leftovers. If you eat my leftovers, the leftovers are gone. Now what am I supposed to do? We say, well, that person is better than me. They're more confident than me. They have more skills than me. God, you gave out all of your skills. There's none left for me. What am I going to do with my life? We become territorial of things that we should be encouraging. You know, if, you, if you've ever have a dog, well, I don't know about little dogs. I, can, I have like a 50-pound rule. If the dog doesn't get above 50 pounds, it's not really a real dog. It's just like a yippy cat. But um, sorry, I, no offense there, you know. Um, but, but anyways, if you have a real dog, oh, sorry, a dog, um, when you feed the dog, the dog eats the food as fast as it possibly can. Okay, and usually it chokes because it's eating the food as fast as it possibly can. Because dogs have this weird fear that if they don't eat it out of the bowl as fast as it possibly can, it will disappear. And if that disappears, there's no other food left in the world and they're going to go hungry and die. And a lot of times we live like this. If I don't get it, there's not going to be another opportunity. If, if God uses somebody else, I'm never going to be used because he just wants to use them. And I'm just sitting here on the sidelines. And God doesn't have enough good things to go around, so I'm left short. Don't be territorial. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison steals your joy from you. It takes the good things that God wanted to give you. Even good old Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. He knew it. All right, and the third point I want to make is stop devaluing others and celebrate them. Be a Jonathan. Be a Jonathan. Jonathan saw what God was doing in David, and he also saw that God would do something greater in him if he would support David. So what did Jonathan do? Jonathan gave up what was supposed to be his so that he could celebrate somebody else. Comparison can make you start to find pleasure and joy in someone else's demise. Saul wanted to kill David. We begin to become wicked. You know that new person at work who wants to steal your job, all of a sudden you begin to 
wish he makes a mistake so he can be fired. You know that other couple who's so much happier than you and your wife or your husband? You, <laughs> that's all fake. They'll never last. They'll never make it. Because we, when we compare to others, we get wicked on the inside. We need to start celebrating people. And when you know how you are celebrated by God, it gives you a position to do that. You know, the, the classic phrase, what did Jesus do? Or what would Jesus do? Well, what did Jesus do? He celebrated people. From the moment that Jesus was baptized, what did God do? God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he lived from that identity. He knew that the father was pleased in him. He knew that the father loved him. And he lived from that identity. So he went and he served people and he celebrated them and he lifted others up. And he said, I am the lowest so that I can lift you up. When we receive that affirmation from the Father, when you understand what the Father says about you, how much He loves you, what He has chosen you for, how He has a plan for you, when we understand that, we have the affirmation that we can begin to celebrate somebody else. Less criticism, more celebration, less evaluation, more celebrating and let me promise this, if you become the person on your team that is celebrating other people, if you become a person in your walk with God who no longer hopes everybody else is worse than you and begins to hope everybody else is actually better than you and has a great walk with God, when you become to just live in who your identity is from God, let me tell you this, you're going to get that promotion, whether it's in your work whether it's in your job, you're going to get that promotion. I brought a little visual here. It makes cool noise. Um, so I never really knew my, my grandpa, my mom's dad. I have two, I have two memories of my mom's dad. Um, one where... Uh, he was sitting in the corner in his big chair in just these tiny whitey tighties. And um, my mom's dad was about 400 to 500 pounds. So sitting in a corner of his living room in these tiny whitey tighties um, with an empty 12-pack of beer sitting on the floor and a full 12-pack of beer that he's working on. My mom said from the time that she was old enough to have memories until the time that her dad got diagnosed with cancer, the only thing she's ever seen him drink is beer. She never saw him take a drink of water. She never saw him drink a soda. The only thing that he ever drank was beer. But then there's a second memory that I have of my grandpa. And that's my grandpa laying in his bedroom and I mean, my grandpa was a big guy to begin with. But, but cancer does something to you where it steals everything from your body. So he, he became super, skin and, or super um, skinny and frail. But his belly was this big. Like you could not, if you, if you wrapped your arms, there was no way you could wrap your arms around him because he had a tumor 
in his liver that expanded through his whole belly to where it was bursting his skin open and he was bleeding from his skin. And, and one of the things that I remember most vividly is the tears in my mom's eye and the joy in her heart when he accepted Jesus laying in that bed before he died. And, and the only symbol that I remember about my grandpa now is not the beer cans, but it's this love for frogs and something in me. He died on my 10th birthday. He lived far away, so I didn't know him very well, but something in me, it was like he passed this love for this. And, and this thing, I call, I call this Rob or Bob because that was my grandpa's name. But, but this is created by its creator to bring people joy. The purpose of this little stuffed animal is to be given to somebody to bring them joy. And I don't know why it's so easy for this to walk fully in its purpose and it's so difficult for me because our creator wrote a path on our lives he wrote a story of our lives he, he filled us with gifts he created you he knit us together he wrote you know this, this says Made, oh, it's made in Oak Brook, Illinois by, um, I can't read that, some, some producer. You know, in our lives, it says, created, Logan Schwant, created in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, created by God, not by my parents, created by God. He wrote a story and a purpose on my life. Who am I to say, I know that? Who am I to say, I know my identity better than you, God? Who am I to say, God, your plan is not as good as the one I have for myself? But instead, God says, I've created you, and I have given you everything that you need. He says, even where you are weak, even where you are weary, even where you are broken, I am present there. And not only am I present there, but my strength is. My peace, my joy is there. And, and this, this identity thing is not, it's not about even our actions, but it's about finding who we really are. It's about being set free. It's about living a life of joy. And stop getting stuck in this world of pain and sin and the news and all of these things that just tear us down, but instead to live a life of joy that is a light on a mountain that is making a difference for the kingdom of heaven because that is, called, that is who you are called to be. So you know what I want you guys to do? I want you to find your David moment. I want us to begin to pursue our David moment. Because David knew who he was. He knew who his God was. He knew who was fighting for him. And he knew what he was destined to be. 
So when the time came for the kingdom of heaven to be established on earth, when, when the time came for God's kingdom to move forward, and when God opened the door and said, hey, there's an enemy to the kingdom, I need somebody to go get it, David was standing at the door and he's saying, send me, I am ready, I want to do it. And God has a Goliath in this world for each and every one of us that he wants you to tackle. God is a big God. He can find somebody else, but that's not what he wants. He wants you to do it. And I don't know what it is. He wants you to do it. He wants you to go. So if you would, could you guys stand with me? Jesus opened the door for us to be able to do this by dying on a cross. You know, we celebrated this Last Supper idea at, at Easter. And that's what communion is all about. I don't view communion as a tradition. Communion is not just something I do. Communion is every single time I come up here and I grab this bread and I dip it in the cup and, and I have this moment with Jesus, I am thanking God because he died for me so that I didn't have to live in the junk anymore and I could live in his life. That is what he did. That is the moment that I am experiencing with Jesus every time we are here, right here in communion. And that's what it's all about. It's because he died, it's because he shed his life, it's because of his blood, it's because of his body, and it's because of his resurrection that we can be free and that we can live in the identity of who Jesus has called us to be. So we're going to close in worship here and take communion. And the way we do communion, we'll start in the middle, you got, and you'll just funnel out. So Petra will start here, Kira will start there, and you'll just loop around and you'll go back to your chair on the outsides. We believe in open communion here at One Chapel, which means you don't have to be a member. The only thing you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And listen, if there's people in this room who want to believe in Jesus Christ, who want to change their identity, who want to experience something greater and something bigger than themselves, well, we're going to have our prayer team up here. I'll be up here. This is time for you to come and to come alongside somebody, and they want to minister to you in that moment. So if you have not accepted Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, this is the time to do it because he loves you. He has a plan for you that is so much greater than this world, and he wants you to be free for the rest of your life. And that can happen right here in this moment. So if you want to talk to somebody about that, our prayer team will be up here. If you're just struggling with this, our prayer team is up here. They're just to come alongside you and to say, Jesus rules. That's why they're there. So dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these people, Lord. I thank you that you are raising up an army. You are raising up an army of warriors who are going to fight for you every day of their life. They are going to be in their own identity. I don't even need the armor. We're going to be David's. We're like, I don't even need this armor because I have God who's going to protect me. I don't care how big the enemy is. I have God who is bigger. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find info about groups, teams, and other things happening at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Have a great week.